Our first reading is from the letter of Paul to the, the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore, implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is taken from Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 to 9, and you'll find it on page 1053 in your Bibles. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not 
because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to the guest, be a guest of the sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. This is the word of the Lord. Great stuff. Can you hear me? I'm on. Fantastic. Okay. Um, I would like to start this morning with a little game. You guys up for playing a little game with me? Um, I made it up, so it might not be that much fun, but we'll see. We'll see how we go. Um, so let's, um, let's have our kind of first slide. So this, this game's called Real or Fake. Um, so kind of you with the person sat next to you, you've got a couple of seconds to look at each picture and decide amongst yourself whether you think this is real or fake. Let's have our first one. It's a picture of a diamond. Is this really a diamond? Two seconds with the person next to you. What do you reckon? Add up your score. There'll be a prize for the winner. Okay. It's, it's, it's a fake. It's a mosinite stone that was engineered in a lab. It's a fake. Let's go to our next one. This is my football team, Arsenal. Is this this year's 2018-2019 home football strip? Is it real or is it fake? What do you reckon? Greatest football team ever, arguably. Um, it is their real shirt. It is. It is. Okay, let's go to our next one. Next one, breaking news. Uh, there was a story earlier this year. Brighton Council evicted a whole uh, load of homeless people, tent dwellers, from the streets. On New Year's Day, I mean, how cruel. Two seconds, person next to you. Real or fake? Real or fake? This is fake news, people. This is fake news. Okay, next one. Let's go to the next one. Is this a real tan or is this from a bottle? <laughs> Okay, is that kind of genuine Barbados tan, or is this out of a bottle? What do you reckon? Two seconds, go for it. Real or fake? It's a fake tan, of course. Uh, next one, let's go to the next one. Nike Flight Bonafide shoe. Real or fake? What do you reckon? Is that a real or fake shoe? It's a real shoe. I mean, who is buying this stuff, people? I mean, come on. It's crazy. Did anyone get a five out of five? Anyone get all five? Yes, a biscuit for Debs at the back. You are our hero, Debs. Well done, thank you. Okay. Uh, let's, let's, um, what are we doing this morning? Why don't you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're on page 1,161. Um, so look at 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to work our way through this text together. Uh, this morning we're stepping back in time. We're stepping back to St. Jude's Church in Corinth in ancient Greece. And it's a church in crisis. They're in a crisis because they're a church who are on the edge. They're at the fingernail stage and they're about to fall away. Paul has a church who are on the edge 
of abandoning the gospel of Jesus and they're falling away. Why? Let's go to our next slide because some super, super apostles have crept in. These super apostles have crept in that look amazing on the outside, but actually they've lulled this church to sleep. They've become a sleepy bunch of people concerned with itself at the expense of looking outwards towards other people. You see, they've thought that the church is supposed to be a museum for saints rather than a hospital for sinners. So these super apostles, they've got their fine-sounding arguments down to a T. They've got their super shiny Sunday speeches down pat. They look really good on the outside, but Paul's quick to point out these guys. It's just smoke and mirrors. Paul, what does fake ministry look like? Well, it produces people, verse 12, the end of the verse, that take pride in what's seen rather than what's in the hearts. It's ministry that cares about looking good more than it does about speaking the truth. It's ministry focused on the here and now and wants all its praise and glory and respect now, but it does little to prepare the people for the coming judgment. So for three chapters, Paul's been giving them reasons to boast about him and real ministry and authentic gospel ministers and not these super apostles. Look at verse 12. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. Literally, we're giving you cause. We're giving you reasons to boast about us so that you can answer those who boast about the external, about what's on the outside and not what's in the heart. So for three chapters, Paul's been giving reasons. If you flick back a page, chapter 3, verse 4, He's saying real ministry is ministry that places its confidence, chapter 3, verse 4, um, in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6, and chapter 4, verse 1, it's ministers whose competence doesn't come from themselves, but it comes from God and is on God's mercy. Flick over the page to chapter 3, verse 11, and verse 18. It's ministry whose glory increases And it lasts. Sorry if I'm going a bit quick for some. Chapter 4, verse 2, it's ministry that doesn't use deception. It doesn't dilute the word of God, but it sets forth the truth about Jesus plainly. In sum, it's it's ministry that's going to do you some good on that last day when you meet Jesus. That's the real deal, says Paul. Do you see the issue? There's a danger in the church then and today, I think, to think, if only our ministers were a little bit cooler. If only they dressed just a notch or two better. If, if, if they're only just a little bit more intellectually savvy. If they just softened the gospel just a little bit and made it more palatable, then the church would be busier and more people would want to come to church. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he came with a foolish message about the cross. That 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says he didn't come with superior wisdom or eloquence of speech. He knew nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. That's what he said, and that is enough. He came in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Outwardly, Paul doesn't compete with the super apostles. And because of that, St. Jude's Corinth, actually, they've put their pom-poms down. They're no longer kind of cheerleading 
the Apostle Paul. They've grown cold towards him. Now, this isn't a new church either. They'd been going for quite some time. It was years since they first heard the good news about Jesus. They'd heard the gospel, and it's to them then that Paul says, verse 20, look down with me, chapter 5, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul says we're the real deal. We're Christ's ambassadors. God's making his appeal through us. We implore you, be reconciled to God. Don't be enemies anymore. Be made friends because of what Jesus has done. So these guys, they're losing their grip. They're at the fingernail stage. And Paul says, chapter 6, verse 1, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. What does St. Jude's Church Corinth and St. Jude's Church Southsea need? They need ministry, verse 15, centered on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for all, the one who was raised again from death. That's what's going to do you good on that last day when you come face to face with Jesus. So real ministry has real motives. I've got two points this morning. They should be simple. Let's bring them up. Real ministry, real motives, and real ministry brings real change. Look at our first motivation for this year of mission ahead. Verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men that what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. The first motive, says Paul, is the fear of the Lord. The word for that in Greek is phobos. It's where we get the word kind of phobia. So uh, has anyone seen that awful film, Arachnophobia? It's a kind of horrible movie about deadly spiders that, that kind of bit and killed people. Uh, it, was, it was horrible. But the word phobos carries with it more than just the idea of being afraid of something. There's a reverence, there's an awe of the thing itself that you're afraid of. So if I woke up this morning to a tarantula with big, fat, hairy legs crawling across my face, I would be afraid. I would be. But there'd be a kind of reverence for this thing. I'd want to get it off really carefully so it didn't bite me and cause my face to swell up or kind of whatever. There'd be, there'd be an awe for this thing. So kind of what's this fear of the Lord that the Apostle Paul knows? Well, look at that since then at the beginning of verse 11. It ties in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what's due to him for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Real ministry, real motives. Here's our first motive. At the end of your life and at the end of mine, we're going to pass through a doorway that's going to lead to a space occupied by the Lord Jesus on a throne where you and I and our colleagues and our neighbours and the people that we know are going to be confronted with the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of your life is going to be opened. And mine. Everything we've ever thought, said and done is going to be revealed, whether good or bad. So maybe there's some great stuff in there. You know, the day of your kid's baptism or an egg and spoon race that you won at school. But there'd be pages in this book that I wouldn't want anyone to read. And to know this, to understand this, at first instance, well, it makes us want to get right with God. And from that place, it creates a deep motive, an awe, a reverence for the enthroned Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The fear of the Lord, it's an inward thing. We know it inwardly. And we become convinced that Jesus is who he said he was and did 
what he said it is, said he did. Do we see there's a powerful motive there to live godly and holy lives for Jesus? And that pushes us outwards to do what? Verse 11, to persuade others to know the Lord. Well, our second motive um, that must go alongside this first motive, uh, so closely connected are these two that you couldn't get a fag paper between them, the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Look at verse 14 and 15 with me. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul says the love of Christ compels us to reach outwards. The love that Jesus has for us, that's our driving force. That's our motive. It motivates us to live for him and to speak for him. And in whatever way we're able to do that, whether that's with a colleague at work um, or kind of whether that's actually speaking to somebody. We speak about the weak and foolish message about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, sent a telegraph to 12 of the most respectable men in London as a joke one night. And the telegram telegram simply read, flee, all is revealed. And within 24 hours, six of these 12 men had left the country. It's a true story. You know, and the point is this. There's dark pages, isn't there, in all of our stories. Dark pages we wouldn't want anyone to hear. And do you know what? God cares enough to do something about it. God is a holy and a just God, and he cares. So all the times that I've ignored God in the world that he's made, every time I've treated God as though he's not important, all the times that I've treated God like he's a vending machine and then blamed him when things haven't gone my way, all of that is typed up and recorded Uh, in this book. It's what the Bible calls sin, living in God's world, pretending God's not there. And this is a problem. Maybe you don't think it is. But our sin, imagine my left hand is you, and this is the record of your life. That creates a barrier between us and God. And let me illustrate what Jesus did. So Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. We're told in verse 21 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the cross is a swap. As Jesus went to the cross, the one who did not sin, he took our sin off us and onto himself. And he died for it, and he was buried in the tomb. And three days later, he came back to life. And now he offers us a new way to live. He offers us his perfect law-keeping life to be ours. So when God looks at you, what does he see? He doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ, who's perfectly kept all of God's commands. Isn't that incredible? That's the gift that's on offer. That's, that's what we can tell people about this year in our year of mission. The good news about Jesus, who died to take the punishment we rightly deserve for living our lives, pretending God isn't there. John Calvin, the 16th century theologian, he, he put it like this. He said, unless our hearts are harder than iron, the remembrance of the great love Christ has shown us by submitting to death for our sakes is bound to make us devote ourselves entirely to him. Do you hear what Calvin's saying? Unless you've come in this morning with 
kind of Kevlar around your heart with a bulletproof kind of vest on this morning. When you think about the cross, when you think about the Lord Jesus and the nails being driven in and the bloody love of Jesus on display, that's meant to stir us. It's meant to stir our soul that we want to live for Jesus and we can't but devote the whole of our being to living for him. Do you see that? Can you feel that? See, the motive of awe and fear, that's powerful. But the boundless love of Christ, that's an incredible motivation for us to live the Christian life and to speak about our Savior. And part of that means that we do need to warn people about hell. We need to tell people that's why Jesus came. He came to rescue us from the punishment that our sin rightly deserves. Well, what a great love. Look at verse 17 with me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who's reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, are you a new creation? I can't go on any further today without asking, are you in Christ? Would you call yourself a Christian? Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. What great love. What a great relationship and friendship the Lord Jesus offers us. Perhaps you're sat here and feeling like you've been slipping away from Jesus for a while. Maybe you feel like you're at the fingernail stage of your Christian life with Jesus. Let me give you some encouraging words uh, that are written down here. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. You have been reconciled to God. God has made you his friends through the blood of Jesus. Rejoice that you've been rescued from hell through the cross for heaven. You've been clothed in the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's been given to you as a gift. Luke puts it like this. He says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you can just sleep for a moment. Uh, This is for the Christian here this morning because the Bible says God has entrusted to you this ministry of reconciliation. You are Christ's ambassador wherever you go. You speak for him uh, as you live for him. So you're kind of picture one. You are the lighthouse. Sir Kim Darrock is Her Majesty's Ambassador to the United States of America. And he has a privileged role, a diplomatic role, because he's sent to speak for Her Majesty and her government in his job. He's got terms to propose. He's got negotiations to make. He's got people to persuade. And just kind of imagine what would happen if Sir Kim decided he's not going to go into work, he's going to kind of give it up and stay at home and play on the Xbox or kind of watch the latest series that's out on Netflix. You know, that wouldn't be a great ambassador, would it? You know, that's not a good ambassador. You and I have a privileged position to speak on behalf of the king of the universe in how we live our lives and by what we say. Maybe you're kind of sat here just thinking this stuff through and you're going, do you know what, Adam, this is, this, whoop, that was a bit of an echo. Do you know what, that j- just, it just sounds kind of really hard. You don't know my friends. My friends are so hard to this stuff. Nothing I say uh, could possibly persuade them. Well, here's our encouragement this morning. Flick back with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. 
and we're on page 1053. We're introduced to um, a little man with a big problem, Zacchaeus. Real ministry brings real change, people. This, this, this little fella's dodgy dealings has got him in kind of um, up over his head with his friends. He'd been taking money off his fellow people and made himself rich. He's kind of like the opposite to Robin Hood, stealing off, the, off his kind of fellow men and making himself very wealthy. And you know, Jesus comes to town and comes to the exact spot where kind of Jesus was. He comes to this tree and looks up to, to Zacchaeus and he came for him. And then he, he goes to this this guy's house and all of the people in verse 7 we're told mutter under their breath at Jesus what is going to be Zacchaeus guest the guest of a sinner and here's the point if Jesus can reach the biggest scumbag in town or the littlest scumbag like Zacchaeus and if Jesus can reach me and he can reach you then he can reach anyone amen isn't that isn't that amazing he can reach anyone Charles Spurgeon said, said this. He said, I don't know whether you see that lion. It's very distinctly before my eyes. A number of persons advance to attack him. While a host of us would defend the grand old monarch, the great British lion with all our strength, many suggestions are made and much advice is offered. This weapon's recommended and that weapon is recommended. But pardon me if I offer a quiet suggestion. Open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. Why? They're all gone. That's the solution, isn't it? Open the, lo- open the door. Let Jesus speak for himself. Perhaps you could ask someone this week, do you want to grab a coffee with me, sit down and open the Bible and have a think about who Jesus is with me? That could be one thing that we could do over the next kind of few weeks and months with our friends. Four, Jesus came, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Well, for this year of mission, we've got two incredible motivations. The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ, and one huge encouragement that no one is beyond the reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the good news about Jesus. We thank you that Jesus came to rescue us. Help us to speak about this good news uh, with joy, and be with us when we're afraid. Help us to be your ambassadors, and speak on your behalf with conviction and with courage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.